I hope your heart rejoices this morning in the newborn king who we celebrate this Christmas. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we are joined together here this morning to behold the God who has provided all we need, the God who took on flesh, who entered in to save us from our sins so that we can be made right with you. And Lord, this morning we ask that your glory would be on display as we look into your word, as we meditate on it, that our eyes would be filled with your glory, with your wonder, that we would be awestruck at who you are and what you've done. Because Lord, as we see you, we are changed. And so we ask for your spirit to be with us, that your spirit would settle our hearts, that it would satisfy us, and it would sanctify us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Christmas is often described, as the jingle goes, the most wonderful time of the year. And this familiar melody summarizes many joys we experience during the Christmas season. It sings there'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. But the parties come to an end. Family goes home, marshmallows get burnt, and the plot line for A Christmas Carol stays just as predictable as the years before. But what of these tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago? Maybe this reason for Christmas being wonderful falls just as flat for you as the others. Being over-familiar with the nativity scenes and the Christmas carols, we can make it through the holiday scene feeling like we missed out on this so-called wonderful time that the songs and the billboards promise us. We are disappointed because of bad expectations. We emphasize the wrong things and forget why Christmas is truly a season that is full of wonder. For those here this morning, you know that Christmas is about the birth of Jesus as we just sung. But what is so significant about this event? Is it only important because of what it would lead to in his death and resurrection? Or is this event itself meant to stir up in our hearts amazement and awe at who our God is? Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We will be in Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at this biblical narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ. And in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, the gospel writer pens, Now the birth of Jesus Christ, he says, took place in this way. As an engaged reader, we could rightly ask, what does he mean took place this way? He could have just said Jesus was born when and and started into The account, but Matthew is highlighting for us the manner in which these events transpired. The author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us that the story of the birth of Jesus has great significance. The details presented in this text are meaning to drive us to an understanding 
It's all, it ought to impact on us who God is and what he has done. But why is the birth of Jesus happened, why has it happened rather in this way? Down in verse 22, we read Matthew interpretively inserts into this narrative the answer to this question. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. Matthew is telling us that this story is important because it tells us something about God. And we must always return to this foundational truth. This is God's word. It is God's revelation of himself. And the reason we read it, the reason we pray it, the reason we sing it and preach it is because it shows us who God is. And Matthew understood this because he records these details and says, all this happened precisely in this way to show us the character of God. Specifically, that God is fulfilling, the text says, what he said he would do. What do we call it when someone follows through with what they said they would do? They are faithful to their word. They are keeping their promise. The point that Matthew is making is that the birth of Jesus displays for us God's faithfulness to his promises. So as we read our text in full, let us ask this question. How does the birth of Jesus display God's faithfulness? Because if we see the faithfulness of God, we will behold the wonder of Christmas. Look with me in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. In this historical record of Jesus' birth, we find three promises fulfilled by a faithful God. Promises we've been reviewing over the past several weeks. Promises we saw two weeks ago in the survey of Genesis that Pastor J.D. preached, and last week in the Song of Isaiah that Carrie preached. Promises of a son, promises of a savior, and promises of a king. The first promise we will consider this morning is that Jesus is God's promised son of a virgin. Jesus is God's promised son of a virgin. Matthew's precision and repetition makes this truth apparent. The words and phrases of this text are overrun with evidence to point us to this conclusion. In verse 18 alone, the phrase is, the birth of Jesus, Jesus' mother Mary, and she was found to be with child, all appear in rapid succession. 
And in the angel's message to Joseph and the quote from the prophet, we find this repeated pattern of words, conceive and bear a son. But baby boys have been born for thousands of years. It happens quite often. So how do we know that Jesus is God's promised son? How do we know that this specific birth displays God's faithfulness? It's only because God told us ahead of time that it would be a unique birth. The promised son would not be born of natural, ordinary means, but he would be born of supernatural, ordained means. Jesus was born of a virgin. And Matthew makes this painstakingly clear. In verse 18, he said, Mary was with child, he said, before they came together. And even In Joseph's obedience to the Lord's command in verse 25, the passage reiterates, but he knew her not until she had given birth. Not only was it clear that Joseph was not the physical father, but two times in verse 18 and 20, we see that the son conceived in Mary was from the Holy Spirit. And all of this, the birth of a son, not from a man, but from the Holy Spirit, took place to display God's faithfulness to a promise. A promise foretold over 700 years earlier by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. And in verse 23 of our text, we read, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Although the Hebrew word used in Isaiah is considered to have a range of meaning, Matthew is writing in the Greek, and he uses the undisputed word for virgin. The intent for inserting this quote is to trigger this sort of thinking. What's happened to Mary and what the angel said to Joseph is exactly what God said would happen. And we ought to marvel at God's faithfulness in the birth of Jesus because Jesus is God's promised son of a virgin. God said it would happen this way. And God is always faithful to his promises. But not only is God's faithfulness revealed in the promised son, we find a second promise that displays God's faithfulness. Jesus is God's promised savior of his people. We are blessed beyond measure that God has chosen to reveal himself. He reveals himself through what he does, through what he says, and through his name. Jacob in the Old Testament was wrestling with God and he begged him, please tell me your name. Moses, when commissioned by God at the burning bush, anticipated the nation's inquiry and said, what is your name? Throughout the Old Testament narratives, God's people would experience terrifying and insurmountable circumstances. But God would intervene to display his powerful grace in a unique and personal way. And the response throughout the pages of biblical history is to declare a summation of praise, the name of their God. Recall Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. Jehovah Rohi, the Lord is our shepherd. As Carrie summarized last week, God's name is who he is. And in the birth of the promised son of a virgin, we find two names. Jesus, which means God saves. And Emmanuel, which means God with us. But to capture the glory and the weight 
of this, we must really read our text in context. Rather, we, must, we need to look back to the left side of our Bibles. We must remember and get our hearts and minds saturated in this progressive revelation that's ramping up to this passage in Matthew. To capture this attitude, I invite you to listen to the heartbeat of the Old Testament. Listen to the Psalms. Throughout, we find a consistent plea. The psalmists perpetually cry, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. I hope for your salvation, O Lord. I long for your salvation, O Lord. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. The saints of history knew the promise of a snake crusher, the one who would reverse the effects of the fall, both death and distance, both sin and separation from God. But they knew of God's promised warrior rescuer who would reconcile rebels to their righteous creator. Do you hear the left side of your Bible? The hundreds of pages that record thousands of years of generation after generation with a growing anticipation of a God who promised to be their salvation. And with that yearning heart, we read as for the first time this message from the Lord's angel. Look in verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Sovereignly, the author of Matthew connects this passage with the Lord's prophet in verse 23, saying, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The very name of the Son testifies to God's promise. It is God who saves. And the mission this divine son came to accomplish is to save his people from their sins. Because only God saves and the son came to save, then the one who has come is God with us. Intrinsic to the biblical concept of salvation is this idea of reconciliation. Sin rejects God. It runs from him. It rebels against his righteous rule. And to resolve our sin problem is to reunite us with our creator. It is the very creator himself who condescends to his creation to achieve our salvation, to be the savior of his people. The sinful sons of Adam could not save. The sacrificial system could not save. The several kings of Israel's history also could not save. The silenced prophets could not save. The self-righteous Pharisees in Jesus' time could not save. Because it is God alone who saves. And it is God who came because there is salvation in no other name. Jesus is God's promised savior for his people. God said it would happen this way, and God is always faithful to his promises. But there remains one final promise fulfilled within the details providentially placed here in Matthew chapter one. 
The third promise found in the birth of Christ is this. Jesus is God's promised king of David. Jesus is God's promised king of David. Often downplayed in the birth of Jesus is the role of Joseph. We never see him speak in the gospel birth narratives, yet his inclusion is far from insignificant. Joseph and Mary were betrothed to each other. And in Jewish culture, their customs for marriage had a three-stage process. They would be engaged, then betrothed, and then married. Parents would initiate the engagement when their children were still very young. This verbal arrangement would set the couple on track toward marriage. And as they came of age, a betrothal contract would be written and entered into by both parties. Dowries would be given in exchange for their earnest commitment and obligation to wait in purity for an entire year. During this time, the man and woman were, by contract, husband and wife. The husband would work to prepare a home, to which at the end of the 12 months, he would ceremonially take his wife home to consummate their marriage. With this in mind, listen again to Joseph's response to the angel's instructions. Look at verse 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. By taking the pregnant Mary into his home, he was completing this betrothal contract and cementing their marriage covenant. Which also would mean, legally, that any child of Mary's would be lawfully Joseph's heir. And this was further solidified in the final order from the Lord that Joseph would name Mary's son, Jesus. While Jesus is physically Mary's son and divinely and co-eternally God's son, he was legally Joseph's son. But Joseph's necessary involvement in this birth story is not because he could follow commands. Rather, it was primarily because of his lineage. Matthew opens this gospel account. Look up at Matthew 1.1. He writes, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew then proceeds through into the next verses to prove his claim by tracing the descendants of Abraham down to King David and then down to Joseph. In verse 16, Joseph is referred to as the husband of Mary, the one of whom Jesus was born. The angel of the Lord highlighted this same fact as well in in his address in the middle of verse 20 saying, Joseph, son of David. The overwhelming details about this royal family line should drive us to ask this question. How does this passage from Isaiah connect with God's promised king of David. The best way to do this is to look at the words in their original context. And although this seems intuitive, we often forget to think this way when looking at scripture. Maybe a helpful illustration would be if I said Marco, you would likely say Polo. If I said Jack be nimble, you might continue Jack be quick. But when I read Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, we think 
that's Jesus. Because we're thinking of the verse in Matthew. But we're not necessarily thinking in the same context in which it was originally given in the book of Isaiah. What would the historical framework of Matthew's original audience have understood when Matthew included this Old Testament reference? I think it'll, it's important for us and will aid us in seeing God's faithfulness in the birth of the promised king of David to look at this context. It's important for us to understand that New Testament writers would often quote short passages that would trigger a broader context for those whose early church, the early church, those whose their scripture was the entire Old Testament exclusively. They did not have chapter and verse sectionings, but large scrolls of God's word flowing cohesively together. This quote in our passage this morning comes from a time in the divided kingdom of Jewish history. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. In chapter seven of Isaiah, the prophet is sent by God to the terrified southern king of Judah, King Ahaz, mentioned in verse nine of this genealogy. King Ahaz was a descendant of King David, but he did not follow in David's footsteps. He was a wicked king of Judah. Ahaz did everything possible to reject God and to run after false gods of the surrounding nations. During his reign, he brought back pagan worship. He set up metal idols and altars. And scripture records that he even sacrificed some of his own sons, bringing this abomination on the people of Israel, God's judgment on the people of Judah. In fear of his rising enemies as God's judgment, he continued in unfaithfulness to the Lord. He sought rescue through aligning himself with the pagan king of Assyria. So what King Isaiah had, King, sorry, King Ahaz did, he gathered gold and silver from the king's house, and scripture says also from the temple of the Lord. And he sent it with a message to the king of Assyria. Listen to his message. I am your servant, and your son, come up and rescue me from those who are attacking me. He would forsake the offspring of the king of David, his own sons, and he would claim to be the son of another. Scripture records in Isaiah that God sent his prophet to warn King Ahaz not to fear his rising enemies who desired to wipe him out but rather to trust the Lord who will be faithful to keep his promises and protect his people. And despite King Ahaz's unfaithfulness to God, God gave a sign that would uniquely display his perfect promise-keeping power. In chapter seven, we hear of the virgin who will have a child that will be called Emmanuel. And that before the child was grown, the foreign rulers that were threatening Judah would be dead. But now, a different judgment would come. The Assyrian nation, their so-called ally, would begin their assault on Judah. As we continue reading in the context of Isaiah, in chapter 8, we find that there was a young woman who did conceive and bear a son. And before that child knew how to speak, we see the, the king of Assyria defeated and plundered Ahaz's enemies. But now, as God said, the Assyrian people had their sights on conquering Judah. 
If this son born in chapter eight is the sign offered to Ahaz by God, why would Matthew look at this as something to be fulfilled in Jesus? The answer is because of Isaiah chapter nine, continuing in the context. If we could just plug in Carrie's sermon from last week and press play, this is the place to do it. In the midst of judgment and despair for the nation of Judah, the prophet of the Lord sings of the future time of restoration. A remnant of God's people rescued by a child born, the text says, a son given. One who would have the government on his shoulders and whose rule of peace would be without end. One who would sit, it says, on the throne of David and rule his kingdom with justice and righteousness forever. The problem is, if we're reading 7, 8, and 9 as a section, we would look and say, the child born in chapter 8 was never crowned king. That son didn't bring about this sort of peace and justice and restoration that the people of God were singing and foretold of. So they would look at this context and say, yes, there was a sign given locally, immediately here to King Ahaz, but there's something yet to be unfulfilled in this child who would be born of a virgin. Those who knew this broader context would have read Matthew's gospel and said, Jesus, he is God's promised king of David. He is the king who would be called wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Can you see in the birth of Jesus God's promises fulfilled? He is the king of David that was promised. He is the savior God who reconciles to himself his people. And he is the son born of a virgin. And what the text says is that all this took place to display the marvelous and matchless faithfulness of God. Like forensic evidence, the Christmas story is filled with the fingerprints of God's faithfulness. And what has been ringing throughout this passage is that God said it would happen this way. And God is always faithful to his promises. Scripture affirms this truth with absolute confidence in Psalm 119.90. Your faithfulness, speaking to God, endures to all generations. God has always been and will always be faithful to his promises. And friends, he has not skipped this generation. The trials and temptations in your life desire to capture your gaze, crush your heart, and to cause you to question God's faithfulness to his promises. But from the cradle to the cross, and from creation to consummation, God is forever faithful, and that will never change. 2 Timothy 2.13 records, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Unfaithfulness may be familiar for us in our fallen world, but it is foreign to our forever God. 
And when life starts to hurt, when the heat gets turned up, we must remember that God is faithful. When your schedule is stressful and relationships are hurtful, God is still faithful. When your budget breaks, when our bodies break, God's faithfulness does not break. It is God's faithfulness that strengthens his children in our times of crisis. Paul would repeatedly anchor the early church's hope to the faithfulness of their God. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And friends, when we fail, when we are unfaithful, what is the confidence of our confession? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The good news for sinners like you and me is that God's faithfulness is manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the promised Savior, Son, and King. The one who died to save his people from their sins so they would live with him forever. He is the God-man who faithful life is offered in exchange for yours. Maybe this morning you've rejected Jesus as the promised Son, Savior, and King. You're dissatisfied with the evidence And you want proof. Friend, your heart echoes the crowds at the cross that mocked Jesus in Matthew chapter 27. They said, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. You see, there's a threefold rejection of the promised Son, Savior, and King. But, friends, Jesus did not come down like they wanted. And it's because Jesus is faithful to his word, not to our demands. You see, he told his disciples ahead of time he would die and rise again on the third day. And the good news for you and me is that he kept his promise. And because he did, he freely offers forgiveness and eternal life to you today. Scripture testifies if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you've seen God's faithfulness displayed in the birth of Jesus, that's a promise you will believe. God's faithfulness is on powerful display this Christmas season. It ought to be something that we leave today brimming full of wonder at God's faithfulness. At every manger scene we see and each Christmas carol we sing, may we remember God said it would happen this way and he is always faithful to his promises. Let's pray together. God, you are faithful, faithful, faithful. 
And Lord, it's because of your steadfastness in keeping your promises and word that we have hope, that we have salvation, that we have joy in this life amidst suffering and trial and difficulty. Strengthen our faith, Lord, to look to you in times of difficulty, to believe and trust and cling and treasure your faithfulness. I pray that you would help the weak, that you would oppose the proud, and that we would all rejoicingly sing to our God who is forever faithful. We love you, Lord. We pray that your spirit would apply your word to our hearts so that we might glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.